This is Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America, the podcast that's part history, part science, and all about how the Midwest has affected U.S. culture as a whole. But because I'm not from here, each episode after I do the research, I sit down with someone who is from here, and we take the walk through history together, exploring the science and culture that comes up along the way. And in the studio with me today, I have Dr. Steph Gesso, professor of psychology at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. Hi, Emily. (laughs) It's good to be here. And Steph teaches classes such as Intro to Psychology, Learning, and Evolutionary Psychology. Did I miss anything there? Nope, not currently. That's what I do. And I asked Steph to join in on the conversation because this episode, we are talking about something that we as humans seem to have an innate love for, just deep within our psychological blueprint, and that is unwrapping things. So, Steph, I know that you said that you have an anecdote that you tell your students about gift wrap and raccoons. Can you share that with us before we get into the history of everything? I sure can. So there are a couple of students of B.F. Skinner's. And B.F. Skinner, for those who might not know. Oh, he was one of the fathers of behaviorism. Yes, so operant conditioning, he was the main guy there. And so Marion Breland and her husband, they had this very famous advisor. They could have gone on to be very famous academics, I'm sure. But instead, they chose to take their talents and to train animals. And they actually had a a traveling animal troupe they called the IQ Zoo, where they had animals doing all sorts of things. Like they had a pig that would vacuum and pick up clothes. So it was like a little pig living in a house, and it would listen to the radio and turn the radio on, and, and people would come and pay money, sort of like a carnival, to watch these animals. And something that they noticed with some of their animals was that once they trained them to do something, Sometimes the behavior broke down. So we're training animals to be in a bank commercial where they would take coins and put the coins in the bank, which is really cute. But they trained a raccoon to do this, and eventually it just stopped doing it. It would then just kind of rub the coins together in its little raccoon paws, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And it was actually a type of what's called instinctive drift, where the animals are going back to behaviors that they would have exhibited while looking for food in the Mm -hmm. wild. But something that was easy for them to train the raccoon to do was opening presents. They loved to do that, and so that was an easy thing. Raccoons make the same types of behavioral movements while unwrapping a present as they would while looking for prey in the wild. So they just love that and get really into it. (laughs) So it's not just humans. No, it's definitely not. I don't know if there were presents inside the presents, if oh, you know what I mean, or me. maybe. But what? I think half the fun for them is just opening, you know, opening the present. Sure, as is yeah. half the fun for a lot of kids in I would the holiday say most season. Most of the fun yeah. sometimes, yeah. So the holiday season does seem like the perfect time to dive into history of all things gift wrap. So wrapping paper, as we know it in the United States, is traced back to the Hallmark Company of the great Midwestern city of Kansas City, Missouri. The year is 1917. Kansas City was a sizable city, and in the holiday season, we can imagine there's snow on the ground and maybe some modest decorations, some lights or garlands hung throughout the city. To tell us more is Hallmark historian, Samantha Bradbeer. 
during the Christmas season of 1917, the company's retail store, known as Halls, was located on the fashionable Petticoat Lane in downtown Kansas City. But before Halls found its home on Petticoat Lane to bring us wrapping paper in 1917, it came from more humble beginnings. Seven years earlier, in 1910, Joyce Hall, known as J.C. Hall, worked in a Nebraska bookstore where a traveling salesman sold him on the idea of buying and selling postcards. He started doing pretty well for himself, so when he was looking to relocate to a larger city, that traveling salesman convinced him to try Kansas City. So he got on a train with a box of postcards and... He arrived in Kansas City on January 10th of 1910 and began a small mail-order postcard business out of the local YMCA. So he's new in town, living at the YMCA, running a business out of his room there, and he had a pretty daring business plan. So basically what he did to start the mail-order postcard business was he would gather city directories and maps and simply write out to the local postcard dealer in hopes that the post service would deliver these to the correct individuals. Maybe it was a drugstore, stationery store, or maybe even a women's department store. But more times than not, he didn't know who he was sending the cards to. He just went ahead and slipped in an invoice and a hundred of his best postcards in hopes that they would buy them. So he's sending out sample packs, essentially, of his best postcards. And he's so sure that people are going to like them, he just goes ahead and bills them for the cards. Pretty good tactic. Yeah, a little ballsy there. (laughs) Yeah. As you can probably imagine, some people were wondering why they received an invoice for something they didn't order. Uh, So they would mail them back and and write him a note saying, you know, I I didn't order this. But luckily, about a third of those retailers he sent postcard samples to enjoyed the the collection and asked for him to send them more. Uh, So his business was up and running by 1910, just shortly after arriving here in Kansas City. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? So he's, he starts to do pretty well for himself, but... As you can probably imagine, uh, the YMCA quickly asked him to relocate uh, and form a headquarters building outside of his room. Uh, he had a very small room, and uh, it was quickly filling up with inventory uh, from these orders that he was receiving. Okay, so eventually he does establish a headquarters outside of his bedroom, and the next big change in the business was transitioning from postcards to greeting cards. And this actually brought them one step closer to developing wrapping paper, though J.C. Hall couldn't have known it at the time. I mean, he was just making a change that made sense for business. Most of the printing companies were based out of the East Coast and in Europe, specifically Germany and England. And as you can imagine, we started to get away from postcards, not only because he couldn't control the quality, especially when World War I would would come around, but that there was this issue with privacy. A lot of people were concerned that the mailman or perhaps their neighbor, if they were out of town, were reading their mail. Um, So having an envelope allowed them the opportunity for privacy, but also it allowed them additional space. And especially as postcards were the main form of communication or other written letters at the time, that was something that was very important. You know, we think about all the security concerns that we have these days and privacy concerns, but this was like one of the first when people thought their neighbors could be reading their postcards. And what would really be in there at that time, though? Your internet passwords, you know, this 
Secret stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. Secrets. I forgot about secrets. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time that Halls is set up for the holiday season on the fashionable Petticoat Lane in Kansas City, they were selling greeting cards with envelopes. And often the envelope liners would feature beautiful detailed scenes as little surprises when you opened up the envelope. And for wrapping in the holiday season, they sold, like many other stores at the time, they sold this simple tissue paper called gift dressing. But in the winter of 1917, they ran out of that general tissue paper option. And so Hallmark founder J.C. Hall tasked his older brother Raleigh with looking for a solution. So Raleigh ran by to the nearby manufacturing plant and he came across some brightly colored envelope liners. And so he rushed those back over to the Hall's retail store, stacked them next to the cash register, priced them at just 10 cents a sheet, and they flew off the shelves. So the first wrapping paper was actually envelope liners. So when they say gift dressing... It was more just like the tissue paper that you would like stuff into a gift bag. Right. Okay. And and now we should say that the history of wrapping gifts does not start with J.C. Hall. Uh, some of the earliest records of gift wrap come from ancient Eastern cultures. The Japanese foroshiki, for example, is a reusable cloth from the Nara period around 710 B.C., and, of course, paper was invented in China around 100 B.C., so that's worth mentioning. And in ancient China is where we see for the first time gifts being wrapped in paper. But from ancient China to Petticoat Lane, a few changes were made, uh, mainly in the variety and style of the patterns. They had, for example, geometric shapes and floral designs, Christmas motifs. And the designs could be changed year to year. Art Deco designs were popular moving into the 1920s. But the basic principle of wrapping and unwrapping, that's pretty much been unchanged from ancient China until now. So to talk more about this human unwrapping instinct is Nick Hobson. I'm Nick Hobson. I'm the founder and chief behavioral scientist of The Behaviorist. And I am also the podcast host of the podcast show, It's All Just a Bunch of BS, where the BS stands for uh, behavioral science. <laughs> of course it does. <laughs> so Dr. Hobson has a PhD in psychology and neuroscience. He's been featured in Forbes, Time, and on NPR. Uh, he's in Toronto, so we spoke over the phone about gift unwrapping. There's this intrinsic enjoyment of unwrapping and I think it taps into this inherent enjoyment of curiosity and surprise. Now, if I understand it correctly, from an evolutionary psychology perspective, and here's where you'll probably have to correct me since that's one of the classes you teach, uh, our human interest in surprises is like a, a mechanism to keep us exploring, kind of a counterbalance to that other strong human instinct don't die, just keep doing the things that haven't killed you yet? Yeah, something like that. So especially if the surprise is good, our brains are in tune to that sort of thing. So you do something, you don't know what's going to happen. It was a happy surprise, so you're going to want to seek that out again and do it again so that you can get the reward and stay alive and not die. 
Right. And the way that the brain communicates with its body is through chemical and electrical signals. If an activity is advantageous for our survival, then, then parts of our brain, sometimes working with different hormone-producing organs in the rest of the body, will then give us this boost of good-feeling chemicals, either hormones or neurotransmitters. So rewarding you internally for that behavior. So you'll do it more. That's what you're speaking about? Yes, exactly. So that's the neurobiology of the underlying behavior is that, yes, something that feels good is generally something that's going to be good for our survival and eventual reproduction. So these chemicals are what makes it feel good for us. And this is sometimes considered to be the work of a reward system or reinforcement within the brain. One chemical that comes up a whole, whole lot, at least in what I've read, is dopamine, which Nick Hobson says is part of what is going on when you see that present with your name on it just waiting to be opened. So there is a sort of like dopamine hitch. There's this little reward we get when we when we see the box. So there's the anticipation of what could be inside if we don't know what's actually inside. So obviously there's the reward element of that is triggering and will set off these dopaminergic single signals in the brain that then motivate us to want to unwrap and then have take away a lot of good experiences from that and want to have that experience again and more of it. And he says that the dopamine hit comes when you see the gift, which is really key, right? Because it's not just like it's this one big rewarding experience, but it's different phases. Do I understand that correctly? Like we we want something and we like it, but that's actually considered to be two different phases. Yes, exactly. So the wanting is associated more with dopamine. Whereas the liking part, so we open the present and we really like it, there's going to be some dopamine present there still, but then now we're getting into more opioids or endocannabinoids. Mm, Okay, so endocannabinoids, chemicals produced by our own bodies that give us good feels, and those receptors are also actually used by chemicals from the cannabis plant, right? But we see these chemicals come into play during the liking phase of things, not so much in the wanting phase. But, But like you say... It's not really about distinct areas, right? It's more about special pathways in the brain. Yes, that's exactly right. So there are connected areas in the brain. In particular, the wanting pathway seems to be the uh, something called the ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens, and the prefrontal cortex. So there's sort of, this has been called the hedonic highway, where you've got dopamine signals running through that, and that's part of the wanting system. And hedonic meaning? Meaning stuff that we like. Yes, so <laughs> very hedonism. fancy work for, yes. word for things we like. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, we, psychology. I know, right? Got to get some <laughs> jargon in there. It, it sounds like it, it's almost like this massive switchboard. Our brain is almost like this massive switchboard, but where instead of having one-to-one communication, Different circuits can combine sometimes, sometimes split apart, maybe turn parts off, turn them on. There might be these areas of particular importance along the pathway or that circuit, but it's all these massive circuits, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that gets overlooked a lot of times when we talk about the brain, and we'll mention this brain part or that brain part, but really... A lot of the brain gets activated when we do almost anything. So it's a little bit of an oversimplification. But yes, we do know that these circuits are activated in these particular feelings and behaviors of ours. Hmm. And so we do know dopamine does seem to play a really big role in that wanting phase or that wanting circuit. And as you mentioned, one of those really important hot spots or stops along the way is the VTA. 
ventral tegmental area and it communicates with all these other areas and it boosts dopamine during that wanting phase. But the liking phase, how does that differ? So it's a different brain area altogether. So the ventral pallidum is more involved in the liking phase and we know this from experiments with animals, but interestingly, there are some case studies where people who have had brain operations and happen to lose the ventral pallidum, they no longer like anything, which is really sad to me. So they don't have that liking phase anymore, even though they still can have the wanting of things. They don't get pleasure from those things. And so if someone is not so familiar with these different brain parts and regions, can you give some kind of spatial um, visual of like where in the brain we're talking about these different areas? Are they, are they in totally different neighborhoods or are they just in different streets or different city blocks? I would say different neighborhoods, yeah. They're sort of spread across the brain from everywhere from the really ancient midbrain and hindbrain of our brain, which are, you know, the reptilian areas that are very evolutionarily old. And it even involves our neocortex, which is the more recently evolved parts of our brain. Mm, okay. So even though we do have these desire-inducing chemicals kind of built into us for evolutionary purposes, Nick Hobson, and of course others agree, says that sometimes things can go awry. There's times when that dopamine signal can run amok. So think of tons of modern-day examples where we overeat, we overconsume on junk food and fast food. That's because we're receiving a hit of dopamine every time we think about eating a fast food burger or fries because evolutionarily our brain was designed to say when you come across a fat source or a salt take in as much as you can and the way that I'm going to make sure that you do that is by is by generating these chemicals called dopamine so that you have the the subjective experience of wanting and craving. Yep, and I always like to mention to my students that there's this evolutionary mismatch between how we used to live and how we live today. So these problems of overeating, even gambling or alcohol or drug addiction, they simply wouldn't have been possible in our evolutionary history. We wouldn't have had these really potent drugs of addiction. We wouldn't have had alcohol readily available. There were no casinos, and there wasn't a lot of food, quite frankly. So all of these certainly problems, not food that was like super rich in fat or salt. Or not sugar. usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely no ho hos sitting around or, or cupcakes. Yeah, but, no ancient ho hos. No, that would have been fun. <laughs> but yeah, that's so. These are really problems I think of a modern age where we have an abundance of lots of different things that we can overindulge in that just simply wouldn't have been possible in the past. And I think it's one of the best examples too of the difference between the wanting and the liking pathways when we think about addiction because most all of us have somebody in our lives who you know have been through that process themselves or are in it and that there you can you can see that there is a wanting and there's no longer any enjoyment going along with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also interesting to note that the wanting circuits are bigger and more robust. There Mm. are more areas involved compared with the liking. The liking is just really kind of smaller areas and they're more fragile. So Definitely evolution instilled us with a sense of wanting, of moving toward, of this motivation, rather than necessarily having the liking all the time. Now, didn't you say that you actually worked or you studied under someone who was doing a lot of this early research on the the difference between wanting and liking pathways, yes? Yeah, absolutely. He was the original pioneer of this. His name was, or is, Kent Barrage at the University of Michigan. And like most good science, in my opinion, he kind of found it by accident. So back in the 80s when he was working on this, he just wanted to sort of demonstrate in a very simple manner that 
dopamine leads to liking. That's what everybody thought at the time. And so he took some rats, he knocked out the dopamine, and then he gave them some sugar water. And this is so cute. The way he measured liking is lip licking in the rats. So if they like something, they'll lick their little lips and stick their tongue out. And it's like, yum, yum, yum. Right. And we all know this. Like intuitively, that's what it looks like when you like something. But also it's been proven through um, uh, empirical research. Right. Mm -hmm. And and little kids do this and, and primates do this as well. And so he took away the dopamine and... The idea was, if you take away the dopamine, then this sugar water will no longer be pleasurable. But he, you know, put the water in their mouths and they continued to lick their lips just like before. And so that was kind of his first hint at, eh, what's going on here? He actually thought he did it wrong the first time. So he repeated his experiments, got the same answer. And so that's where he kind of got the idea. Well, maybe the wanting is actually different from the liking. They still like it, even if they don't want it anymore. And so then he did another experiment, completely knocking out all of the dopamine system. And the rats wouldn't eat or drink. They were not interested. But if you put the sugar water directly in their mouths, they still liked it. They still would lick their lips and seem to be having a good time there. So that to me is really interesting. They, they showed no interest in it, didn't approach it, didn't want anything to do with it, but they still liked it. And so then that's what led to this idea that, okay, there might be two separate processes here, separate but overlapping. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And he actually kept these these findings secret for a number of years because he thought no one would believe him. And Kent spent at least four or five years just sort of quietly doing experiments. Other people were telling him he was crazy, that he should stop this line of research, but he just kept at it because he thought there was something really interesting there, and he was right. Meanwhile, he's getting generations of rats diabetes. Yes. <laughs> So I do need to point out that I have something for us here today in oh the studio. Mm-hmm. Present. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah. Oh, dopamine's going yeah. in my brain. Oh, ding, ding, ding. Yep, yep. So it, it's a box that was donated to us, a, a gift, and we're going to open it so we can have our own kind of unwrapping experience. But I wanted to tell you about it early. That way we can we can experience the wanting phase uh, separate from the, the liking phase. Okay. So keeping in mind that there is this difference between wanting and liking of these separate but overlapping systems, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Uzma Khan, who is currently researching how the quality of wrapping affects the enjoyment of a gift. I am Usma Khan. I am Associate Professor of Marketing at University of Miami, and I study consumer decision-making. There have been studies since the 1990s, actually, indicating that we will be more likely to rate a gift favorably if it is wrapped versus totally unwrapped. Uh, Some speculate this is due to the added element of surprise. Uh, In a statement for this episode, Tanya Luna, author and researcher of Surprise Industries, says that surprises make you pay more attention to the experience because of the specific type of brain waves triggered with surprise. And others have shown an added element of surprise causes an even greater boost of dopamine in the brain. My favorite one of one of these studies is from Baylor College of Medicine and Emory University. It involves shooting fruit juice unexpectedly into people's mouths. <laughs> and as always, you can contact me or the show to get citations for any of the papers we reference in our episodes. Uh, and Steph, you're, you're nodding your head there. You know this research. Yes, and they've done it with primates as well. And it's the same thing. The, the unexpected shot of juice is just really exciting for people and for primates. I wonder what they use. Do you think they use squirt guns? 
to be honest, I've never seen one. But like you say, it's been it's been replicated. Yes. So that that's something that we've seen over and over again. Yep. Uh, but Dr. Uzma Khan and her team are exploring how the quality of the wrapping makes a difference. While Dr. Khan's research is not yet published, it, it is already being written about in publications like The Economist and others before Dr. Khan and her team have shown similar results. And that is that it really does make a difference if you wrap the gift with great care versus just throwing it in a paper bag. So here is the setup for Dr. Uzma Khan's research. People come in uh, to our lab um, and they take part in certain surveys and those surveys are not relevant to our study. Uh, what we do is towards the end, uh, when they get done, we give them a little token of appreciation. And some people get the gift just in a plain white box. And other people get the same gift, and it's in the same plain white box, but now it is covered with this beautiful black ribbon and bows and all that. And then we ask people to open it, and inside the gift box is a, a small hand sanitizer. Okay, so they get this gift, either in a plain box or one with ribbons and bows. It turns out the gift is pretty lame, it's hand sanitizer, but their reaction to it depends on the box that it came in. If that little hand sanitizer came out of a plain white box, you'll be okay with it. But if it comes out of this box, which is covered with bows and ribbons, you'll be like, what is this? Um, because now you're expecting at least a truffle to pop out of that box. Um, so then we ask people how happy you are with this. And this is a completely unexpected gift. They had no expectation of receiving a gift. And they got this gift. And we find that people are significantly less happy with the same hand sanitizer if it came out of this box, which was nicely wrapped, versus if it came out of this plain white box. It's a little sad to me. <laughs> so Dr. Uzma Khan speculates that this reaction comes from a few different emotional sources. So a lot of this is about expectation management and expectancy disconfirmation. Expectancy disconfirmation is when what you expected is not what you get. And we all know this intuitively, right? Like we know that it stinks. And that's why there's the phrase, don't get your hopes up. So the problem with a really nicely wrapped gift is that your expectations are too high. And the more beautiful, the more uh, effortful that packing is, the higher my expectations of what is within. So you're more likely to be disappointed with what's within the box because you were expecting so much from the outside. Depends what's in there though, right? That's true, right. Yeah. So you might be thinking, but what if the gift really does meet the expectations of the wrapping? Well, it is true that if the gift is actually spot on, like a spot on stellar gift, perfectly matched for the recipient, then the wrapping really doesn't make any difference at all. However, Dr. Khan says, don't hold your breath on that. My money would be that most gifts miss the mark to begin with. So most gifts are not super attractive. And in that case, wrapping them up nicely is a really bad idea. Uh, and most of the time, people are very sure that what they're getting is going to make the recipient happy. And still, they're wrong. <laughs> because the fact is that Dr. Uzma Khan's research is not only based on gift giving, but also on that premise that humans are just generally really bad at predicting what would make ourselves and others happy. Yes, and I think the ourselves part is the most interesting of that, don't you? Just we think we would really, really like something and then we get it and eh, who cares? 
Yeah. In studies of lottery winners, for example, those folks are temporarily more happy, but in the long run, that comes back down to a baseline level that they were at before, and they're no happier than when they started. So her recommendation is? Just plain wrapping or a plain gift bag would be great. Less is more in this case. Okay, so wrap the gift, but just don't make it too nice. Or if you do, just make sure that you spill some turkey gravy on it at dinner before you give it to your friend. Oh, that's, and that's a, a, another thing, actually, that some other researchers have turned up. That is, if you're giving the gift to someone that you're not actually that close with, so, you know, holiday office parties, we're talking to you now, then wrapping the gift nicely actually is a good idea because it shows that you care about the relationship. And, of course, because as we've said, we all like unwrapping stuff. So when we use plain wrapping for our family, is that showing that we don't care about the relationship then? Hmm. I think it's maybe that you know that the relationship is so solid you don't have to prove anything. Okay. But the fact is we do like unwrapping stuff. We know that. So it's so much so that the internet craze of unboxing videos has absolutely blown up in recent years. Since 2010, the number of videos on YouTube with the word unboxing in the title have soared something over 800%. This is Annette Choi. I'm a science and graphics journalist at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Um, I come from a background of science and health reporting. I've been published in PBS Nova and Vox. Okay, so do you know about these unboxing videos? I do not. I'm not very up on my memes and such, so you'll have to explain it. All right, so I didn't know too much about it before this, actually, but it is. It's a massive thing. They are literally just videos of people opening boxes to reveal products inside. So what kind of products are they selling the products? What is the point? Sometimes of people uh, who are making these YouTube videos are paid by companies, sometimes not. Um, there does seem to be a worrisome trend of children being more so intrigued by these. Um, it's really easy to grab their attention and they'll just watch these videos over and over and over again. Mm. And so Annette Choi, a paper of hers, was recently published through PBS Nova uh, about this strange kind of relationship that the viewer seems to establish when they watch these videos. It's almost like they have a relationship with that person who they're watching. And this is called a parasocial relationship. Parasocial relationships really just means one-sided relationships. And they've been around forever. Um, people have developed that kind of relationship with Oprah or different cast members on TV shows. But with the evolution of YouTube and different digital media platforms, um, it's really just evolved and manifested into different forms. And one of those forms was unboxing videos. That's very interesting, isn't it? And I think that's another example of a mismatch where this wouldn't have been something we could have done in the past. And now we all know Matthew Perry and think we know who he is and want to be friends with him. And he doesn't care about us. Yeah, because when you think about other one-sided relationships in life, hopefully you cut those off after a while. <laughs> yeah, someone should. Yeah, Or right? you get arrested. There's a stalking <laughs> Yeah, some, Problem. right, there there are in the natural world, we kind of guard against it. But uh, here's Nick Hobson from The Behaviorist on the phone again um, with one explanation of why these videos are so captivating for people. When they watch the video, at the level of their brain, it's almost as if they are doing the unwrapping. So it's a little bit of a trick that's happening 
in our biological systems. And it doesn't hurt that these videos are very sensory rich experiences. Uh, Annette lists some of the sensory hallmarks of these videos. There's just this sense of intimacy that comes with the snug um, camera angle and the, the loud crinkly noises and you, you're very close typically to the creator's hands and their face and the way that they're describing it to you. So there's a real, uh, there's a sense of intimacy there. And one explanation then could be... Sort of a mirroring effect, which we've heard about in the neuroscience literature in the last decade or so. Some people call it mirror neurons, some call it mimetic transmission, some call it action perception monitoring, whatever you call it. The premise is that you can watch another person do something, especially a physical behavior or action, and your brain will send signals as if you are the one who's engaging in those movements or engaging in that same experience. He took my talking point. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. And I love mirror neurons. Yes. Yeah. So mirror neurons, they, these studies came onto this scene in the 1980s. And these studies showed monkeys picking up peanuts. And the brain activity in the monkey motor cortices was similar when the monkeys picked up the peanuts as to when they watched their friends picking up the nuts. Is that, am I explaining it correctly? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, but... Nick Hobson has a, a bit of a warning for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to go full force with that explanation of the mirror neurons because some of the some of the research in the last five, ten years has come out to be um, not so strong. The evidence has been quite weak. So it was initially observed in in monkeys, and and then humans said, "Oh, we have our own mirror neuron system that is responsible for empathy and the fact that we can empathize with others." That research is less clear. And so he prefers the concept of an action perception system instead. That doesn't go so far to say, look, we have this system in our brain that helps us empathize. The action perception system sort of stops at the level of movement. So that is to say, if I'm watching somebody pick up a glass of water, then I will have this, not the same, I will have a similar pattern in my motor cortex, the part of the brain that's responsible for movement, in, in such a way that it's almost as if I'm picking up a glass of water. So I almost didn't even bring up mirror neurons because it is this kind of like contested topic right now. Yeah, for sure. But the idea that they could be there is very interesting. And we, we have seen them in primates. It's just harder to do the invasive types of studies with humans. Right. And it's harder to ask primates what they're feeling, too. <laughs> yeah. But even so, humans can lie a lot. So right. yeah, it, it gets tricky with humans as well. So maybe because your brain is acting almost like you're doing the action, you also get some of the those accompanying emotions. Like that could be. Um, I just think that the evidence isn't quite there yet. So uh, Nick Hobson says, until further notice, the action perception system is good enough for him, even if the technology does tempt us otherwise. With the boom of neuroscience research in the last 20 years, especially with, with fMRI studies, which allow us to look at a, a brain and say, look, this quote, quote lights up when we do X or when we feel Y but it's not like the be-all, end-all. It's more of a process than it is a, here's a specific part in the brain that allows us to empathize. Like, people love that just because it's such a more, it's a much more intuitive, easy-to-understand phenomenon. 
um, but it's probably a wrong. It's probably the wrong one. Right. We we definitely like the simple answer, and so it's tempting to just say, "Oh, yeah, there's that one bit. It's lighting up." So I have empathy, but ugh, we're much more complicated than that. Right. So until we do get to reproduce more of these studies, what we do know is that when we unwrap things ourselves, we get all the feels. Yes. <laughs> and and companies know this too. So now in this age of e-commerce where we're buying everything online and packaging is no longer about just getting the product to the store unbroken, it's about giving your customer the best possible unboxing experience at home, uh, it, things are changing. Companies start to realize that their delivery needs to stand out from the other deliveries. This is Rich Daniels, uh, the founder of FunPack, a packing peanut company, uh, speaking about how to make your product stand out from others. And how do you make that happen, right? It's really the last touch that you get with your customer. And with the explosive growth of e-commerce, everybody's looking for something to stand out, you know. So the biggest part of your marketing that you can't control is word of mouth. And that represents 25 to 30% of your outstanding marketing. Yeah, I mean, so that's something that companies are doing a lot more of right now. And Rich Daniels is just one of these entrepreneurs thinking a lot about unboxing. Uh, but his company, FunPack, is not just about unboxing. It also a, has an environmental focus. His packing peanuts are 100% biodegradable, made from corn. So in case you had thought that we had lost our Midwestern connection here, fear not, because guess where the corn comes from? It's all from the upper Midwest, more specifically about a 500-mile radius around the uh, city of Minneapolis. And in fact, one of the earliest innovators in corn-based packing peanut technology was actually the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. But Rich noticed that... Just being sustainable wasn't enough, and so what we did is we shaped it. So we shape it and color it in company logos, uh, iconic images like dog bones, Christmas trees, hearts, uh, shamrocks, red, white, and blue stars. And then we also do corporate logos. So FunPack comes in all these different shapes and colors, and brands can choose what works for them, be that tiny dog bones, letters that spell out mom. He even makes miniature cornstarch growlers, you know, like those uh, big beer jugs, mm -hmm. uh, but in packing peanut form. So naturally, I asked him how he does this, and it turns out that there is one cool machine behind it. Yeah, the, the company that makes, like, the Doritos machines, the Frito machines, the Cheeto machines, the Lucky Charms, those little marshmallows. It's called Maddox Metals, and they produced the machine that was then modified for making packing peanuts instead of chips and cereal. But some of his customers are pretty big names. Lush Cosmetics uses his packing peanuts. All these brands, it matters so much to them now, not only about the unboxing experience, but these things that represent you as a company. Like the fact that it's biodegradable is a big deal for companies because they know their customers care about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just more fun that way. And little beer growlers, that's really fun. And Rich was telling me he's a, the only one that he knows of who holds a patent for the shapes that's just for fun. Like the other shape patents that are out there is because it, it would make them like interlocking or it would make them stronger. And, and his peanuts are very strong actually because of the way that they're shaped. But his, his idea was just it's fun. Right. And it, people will pay for that in this age of e-commerce, that it's fun when you open it up. Yeah, absolutely. But we can't talk about packing and uh, unwrapping things. Really, we can't talk about fun without talking about this next thing. 
It's bubble wrap. Oh, yay. Yeah. <laughs> bubble wrap and Bloomington, Indiana. Bloomington, Indiana is home of Bubble Wrap Appreciation Day. Because almost two decades ago, in 2001, Spirit 95, a Bloomington, Indiana radio station, accidentally let sounds of popping bubble wrap slip onto their airwaves. They had a new box of microphones delivered, and their unboxing experience was then heard by listeners all across Bloomington. <laughs> and everybody loved it, so the radio station declared the last Monday of every January to be National Bubble Wrap Appreciation Day. And you know, I brought bubble wrap into the studio. Of course, yes. Of course I did. Yeah. Good Here times, you go. Good times. Here's your piece. All right. Here's mine. Oh, yeah. It, it is very satisfying. I like the bigger ones. These are the <laughs> tiny ones, but I like those bigger, more oh, bulbous yeah. ones, too. Oh, uh, oh yeah. man, but your your face says it all right now. You're clearly enjoying yourself. <laughs> Something very satisfying about it, yeah. It's reminding me of those little firecrackers that oh, kids yeah, throw, totally. those little snap mm -hmm. things. So we get a whole day now to uh, celebrate this. Fantastic. <laughs> and it does, it turns out that there is good reason for us to be celebrating, says Nick Hobson from The Behaviorist. He says that research indicates popping bubble wrap can actually reduce stress. This research was first done in the 1990s, but it's related to a larger psychological study of just ritual behaviors in general. I sort of see the, this one mini behavior of bubble, popping bubble wrap, belonging to the broader category of ritualizing or ritualistic type movements. And we know that the primary function of ritual or ritual-like movements is to, is to ease our anxiety. It's the same mechanism, it's the same psychological mechanism that can be helped to explain a lot of prayer beats in almost every single religion. So it's no coincidence that every religion has some type of prayer bead. Now, of course, it's not the only thing going on when someone prays. Uh, so they're saying the prayer, which is, has this more high-level appraisal calming effect because they're praying to their God uh, or praying to some cause. But then on this low-level, bottom-up physiological, uh, in, in this sort of physiological way, they're also engaging in these little finger and hand movements, which will, again, um, quell some of that, that unconscious anxiety. And he says that small finger and hand movements is one of the things that has been shown in studies to reduce anxiety. And that's why you might like click your pen at work or spin the wedding band on your finger or any other number of ritualized little tiny movements. And of course, that's also what a lot of people experience with things like fidget spinners and all of that. And I think that popping bubble wrap can be seen as kind of similar to unwrapping presents, especially because gift giving and receiving is so ritualized in our culture. And on the surface, these types of behaviors are nonsensical. They're irrational. There's no reason we need to do them. And yet we still feel compelled to do them. And we feel like at some level they are helping because we, by design, humans are these quirky little creatures. And a lot of the stuff that we do just doesn't make sense. Amen to that. <laughs> and the study of psychology was born. Yes. <laughs> but it's also like this very private thing, these rituals that we do. And sometimes they're so private, you know, it's just nobody even knows that you're doing it. If it's just like you're spinning a little fuzzball in your pocket or something like that. And then gift giving is 
uh, more public, but it's still usually within your intimate family. And so it's, it's this kind of intimate thing that Annette Choi talked about. And now it's becoming very public because we watch videos of it online. And sometimes companies use it for advertising. Well, I almost feel like people are getting rid of their need for privacy in a lot of ways that concern me. So they're putting so much of their life out on the Internet in ways that I don't fully understand. Um, and it's kind of ironic to think about if you remember that part of the push for greeting cards way, way back in, uh, the, in 1917, the push for those greeting cards with envelopes and those beautiful liners that would later become wrapping paper, the push for that was concern about privacy, right? Like people thought that their neighbors might be reading their postcards. And now here we are, and we have all kinds of different privacy concerns. And it just, it's like, a, it's a totally different world. Yeah, then now we're, here's what I ate for breakfast, and I'm going to film that and put it on Facebook. So yeah, definitely a different world. And it's not only like, why do you think that someone would care? Because I hear that sometimes, like, whoa, who cares what you ate for breakfast? Like, well, obviously, like, 4,010 people did because they right. liked it. Right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If someone is liking it, then that's going to be that little bit of opioid hit that will make the person like that and want to do it again. So here's my breakfast the next day. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so I want to take us back to the 1930s, back to that other time before the Internet and before unboxing videos where this main form of advertising Hallmark was using at this time uh, a different form of advertising. They were using a radio program called Tony Wong's Scrapbook. And the host, Tony, would open up and read on air Hallmark cards. And then, of course, he would tell you where to get them. Uh, this is Tony reading a birthday card on his show in the 1930s. Here's something you'll get a kick out of. Listen, it's a birthday greeting. By the time I pay my dog tax and my hog tax, too, sales tax and mail tax to get this card to you, and dumb tax, tax, thumb tax, and tax on stuff I've had. School tax and mule tax and a back tax, I believe. And water tax, they almost tax the air we up and breathe. Coal tax and coal tax, dog gone. I'm busted flat. But I'll still say happy birthday, because there ain't no tax on that. Yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you probably guessed, that was a Hallmark birthday card. Okay, so that's what Hallmark put in the card, not what someone wrote in the card, correct? Right. Yes, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was on Tony Wan's radio show. I see. And that was their form of advertising. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> which is like also kind of intimate. Yeah. Feels equivalent to me of like what the, um, for, for that parasocial relationship that <laughs> yes. Annette Choi is talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, before we wrap up here, we do need to open this box. Yay. Let's do it. The dopamine's been flowing. Yes. Okay. Now, this has been donated to the show from Bookish Box. It's a monthly literary subscription company, but instead of just a book, you get a whole package themed around the book, and usually you get the book, too. Um, but really, I have no idea what is in here. So I'll hand this over to you, Steph. Okay. You can use that to open it. Um, okay. What do we got? Ooh. Look at this stuff. Oh, yeah, it's we like got little crinkle paper and it, there's some yeah, like stuff. Like little confetti streamers. Oh, and look, wrapping within wrapping. Oh, Ooh. nicely done, guys. Yeah, so a little a little pouch. I think this must be the actual book. 
The book is called A Girl Named Anna by Lizzie Barber. Oh, okay, a, a pin. Let's see. Oh. oh, it's a luggage tag. Oh, it's a luggage tag, and it's a cat. Jeez, there's, it keeps <laughs> it keeps going. Holy, oh, a sleep mask. Oh, yes. man, that's great. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Okay, so this may be the perfect example of how wanting and liking are different, right? Like the wanting portion leading up to opening the thing, different from a pure enthusiastic liking of the thing. <laughs> yes. But also our experience of this box is influenced by so many different factors. And thanks again to Bookish Box for the donation to our show. But it's so many different factors go into how we're feeling right now. Yes. And that's what Dr. Uzma Khan says that we need to keep exploring, all of these different elements that are affecting the gift-giving experience. I think that there are, there, there are all these layers that have not been peeled yet in the gift-giving and wrapping context in itself. Right. And to know exactly what our brain is doing, we don't have access to that at the moment, but we only have our subjective experience. so much, Steph, for coming along this holiday-themed science and history trip with me today. It's been a wonderful conversation, and you made my job super easy. All of your site perspectives and everything were really invaluable, so thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. This has been one of my bucket list things. I wanted it, and I liked it. Oh. Yes, both of these things. So lots of good stuff going on in my brain right now. <laughs> You've been listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America, a production of Omaha Public Radio. We owe a big thanks to Bookish Box for our unboxing experience today on the show. And a thank you to Tanya Luna of Surprise Industries. And thanks to everyone we interviewed, Rich Daniels of FunPack, Annette Choi, Doctors Uzma Khan and Nick Hobson, Samantha Bradbeer, Hallmark Historian, and the Hallmark Archives for the photographs on our website. The desserts for this episode's listening party were provided by Primal Indulgence, a Nebraska-based dessert delivery service. This episode was produced by me, Emily Chen Newton, Joshua LeBuer, and Todd Hatton. Our theme music is written and performed by Nathan Blake Lynn, and our sound designer is Ben Soli. For citations used in this episode, contact me, emily.chennewton at kios.org, or reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter. That's at KIOS Omaha. Send us your comments and be sure to download and subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming monthly episodes of Made in the Middle. Made in the Middle.